0: If you would take your scriptures and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9, we'll be reading verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. If you'll give ear to the reading of God's word. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice for that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. O Lord, you're our portion. We promise to obey your words. We seek your face with all our hearts. Please be gracious to us according to your promises. We consider our ways and turn our steps to your precepts. We will hasten and not delay to follow your commands. Though the wicked bind us with ropes, we will not forget your word. At midnight we will rise to give you thanks for your righteous guidance. We hold all as friends who fear you and follow your precepts. The earth is filled with your love, O Lord. Teach us your decrees. Help us to hear your word this morning and apply its truths to our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In the scripture, we have seen the one covenant by which God developed the plan of salvation. It's called the covenant of grace. And it's developed by the true triune God in eternity past. It was inclusive of two covenant concepts, works and redemption. This covenant was revealed to men through what we call individual covenants, covenants made with various people. Scripture clearly presents these, this series of covenantal relationships instituted by the one true and living God. We understand. These primary covenants to be covenants made with various people: Adam, Noah, Abraham, David, and the New Covenant in Christ. As you study these covenants, you'll learn that they are related to one another, and that they are they are connected. There's a line of connection that leads from them directly to the Lord's Supper. God gave to man throughout the centuries, a continuing and broadening revelation of this plan of redemption coming to its final revelation on this table as it stands before you this morning. All of these covenants have a structural unity. But this morning, I want to show you their summation, their final fulfillment. I think this follows very closely to what the Psalms, especially the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms of the third book, uh, these Psalms teach us about covenants and about covenant theology. God decreed the creation of the universe as a place for man to live. He planned how it would all work out. He knew there would be sin because he planned for it. He knew Jesus Christ would be sent, sent to redeem the people unto himself, because that was the first thing he decreed. Peter explains in 1 Peter 1, 19 through 20, You are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, and without spot. He intended, he indeed was for ordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you. God chose to send Jesus Christ, to send him before he decreed anything else. Christ was the key to redeeming a people and to accomplish it through grace. Throughout history, God has been working everything out according to his own goodwill and pleasure. Never has there been any doubt the world would move toward the final great end that God had set in motion. That Jesus Christ would come, that he would pay the price for the sins of his people, sins that they could never pay for. From the moment Adam opened his eyes, the plan has been set in motion. In Genesis 3.15, we hear the first promise of this plan of God pronounces his judgment on Satan and promises a redeemer to the elect. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Satan will wound the Redeemer. He'll wound him with a non-lethal wound. But the Redeemer will strike him with a mortal wound. Now understand, this is all that was given in this covenant with Adam. That's the entirety of it. No time of the coming of this Redeemer. No name given him, simply the promise that he will come. This simple promise, this promise of a Redeemer coming, carries forward with each succeeding covenant. This morning, I'll show that God had a plan in mind from the very beginning. and That plan was totally embedded in one person from before the foundation of this world. The running promise of all the covenants has been that in a certain place and at at his own time God would meet with those he had called as his people and he would be their God and they would be his people. This is the summation of scripture. It is the, the, the Emmanuel principle of God. God being with us. God made a promise to Adam and it's still valid today. You have a better understanding of it today because it's been completed. Let's examine this great promise as it's unfolded in Scripture. We shall see the climax of this promise of God made between He and those He called. First, we will study the beginning. Second, we will consider the dwelling place. Third, we will look into the climax. As we look through scripture and observe God's administration of the covenant, we will find that that these that there's one phrase, one phrase only that reoccurs time and time again. This phrase comes as the summation of the covenant relationship. That phrase is, I will be your God and you will be my people. It is in the constant repeating of this phrase or its equivalent we find the summation of the covenants. The Emmanuel principle is what we are striving for because it shows the heart of each covenant, God with us. In Genesis three, we hear God pron- pronouncing the curse upon Satan and man for their rebellion against him. In verse 15, we hear God promise. There will be one, one who will conquer Satan and death. That one will be the seed of the woman. This is the first promise of redemption and of a redeemer found in Scripture. In the Old Testament, the salvation of men was tied to their belief in the one who was to come and deliver them. This promised one is tied back to Genesis 3.15 and the promise of a redeemer. Therefore, to be God's people, to serve him as your God, it's absolutely necessary that you be restored to a fellowship with him. And there is only one way that can happen. It can only come through Jesus Christ, the one promised in Genesis. Through Adam's sin, all men lost their place of fellowship with God. This promise, I will be your God and you will be my people, is securely anchored in the one promised in Genesis 3.15. We find the first clear stating of this summation in Genesis 17.7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. God is here establishing his covenant of circumcision with Abraham. He's making circumcision the seal of the covenant. With Moses, God uses this phrase a lot and each time with a specific emphasis. This covenant promise deals with Israel's deliverance from bondage in Egypt. Israel must be freed, freed from the pollution of Egypt in order to be God's people. And that pollution of Egypt is sin. We all need that deliverance. Look at Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know, that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the the burdens of the Egyptians. We find this same idea in the inauguration with the covenant of Moses. In Exodus 19.4, God reminds Israel that it was he who delivered them from Egypt. It was he who bore them up on eagles' wings and brought them to himself. He makes it clear, if they continue in obedience... This They will be his treasured possession among all the nations. In David's covenant, we find the same promise made at a very crucial point in the history of the monarchy. The high priest Jehoiada is replacing the corrupt queen Athaliah with the seven-year-old Jehoash in order to maintain the line of David. 2 Kings eleven seventeen. Then Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord, the king, and the people, that they should be the Lord's people, and also between the king and the people. In the parallel account of 2 Chronicles 23.16, we read, Then Jehoiada made a covenant between himself, the people, and the king, that they should be the Lord's people. What we see is that the maintenance of the Davidic line in the covenantal relationship with God is always related back to Israel, to God's people. To Israel being a people of God. It is also clear that the covenant, new covenant, is founded upon this same phrase. In Zechariah 2.11, the prophet is thinking about the day when many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, says the Lord and I will dwell in your midst. With this comes the express promise. It says this Old Testament covenant promises to be an extended to both Jew and Gentile, bringing the two together, the middle wall of petition being torn down. With this comes the express promise. It says this Old Testament covenant promise is to be extended to both the Jew and the Gentile. Zechariah 8.8 8, I will bring them back and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. On the basis of this promise in Genesis, in verse 16, Zechariah admonishes the people to speak the truth to one another. Where have you heard that before? This is the same admonition. The same admonition given to the new covenant people of God because they're now in union with Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 4.25 we're told, Therefore putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The New Testament makes a stronger application of this theme in Hebrews 8.10. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is the new covenant. You see that same promise alive still. It's also made in Second 2, 2 Corinthians 6.16. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Both of these passages teach that Christians will be different from other peoples. They will be separated from unbelievers. For God has said, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I trust you get the picture. This call to be separate unto holiness represents a most appropriate application of this covenant principle. What was it Moses originally related the phrase to? To Israel's separation from Egypt and the uncleanness of Egypt. This is the theme that binds all the covenants together. We're separated. Separated from the uncleanness of the world. We are set apart as God's people. What then is the current central, is the central focus of all of this summation? The central idea is that God will not just be our God, but he will dwell with us. He will be in our midst. He's living in your heart right now. He's in the midst of this congregation. In Revelation 21, 1-7, we find the promise of this dwelling place as it will be in eternity. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them and be their God. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor sorrowing, nor crying. There will be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirst. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. The reality of God living among his people is central to and is given even an ever-increasing significance throughout Scripture. We see it in the Garden of Eden. It moves from there to the tabernacle, to the city of David, to the temple, to the hearts of men, to heaven itself. It involves the incarnate Son, the church of Christ, the final glorification of his people in heaven. In each place and under every circumstance. God dwelling with his people is related to the summation of the cross. I will be your God and you will be my people. God by dwelling in their midst seals the reality of his promise that he is their God and they are his people. The very essence of this promise found in its initial fulfillment in the form of the tabernacle, so that he might dwell with them. God dwells with us. If you believe and trust in Christ and in Christ alone for your salvation, it is Christ who has done all of that for you. He lived this life, this perfect life that you could never live. He died the atoning death. He won the resurrection victory. And what Christianity is calling you to do is a lot more simple than most make it. He's calling you to place your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone, for Christ has done for you everything you could never do for yourself. Put your hope and trust in him. That's what will open the heaven's gate for you. God had commanded Israel to build a tabernacle, to build it as a meeting place with him. The sons of Israel were instructed to consecrate the tent, this tent of meeting so that God could dwell among them, his people, and thus be their God. In Deuteronomy, we find an emphasis being placed on the place in which God would choose for his name. This was in anticipation of that centralization of God's dwelling place. It was to be established in Zion in the midst of his people, Jerusalem, prophets recognize the importance of God's dwelling place being in the midst of his people. Ezekiel 37 verses 26-28 through Moreover I will make a covenant of peace with them it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My tabernacle also shall be with them indeed I will be their God and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel with my sanctuary, is in the midst forever. What is the final form to be of this temple? This is important. If we look at the New Testament, we're going to find that answer. In John 1.14, it says, The word became flesh and lived, that word is tabernacled, for a while among us. Through the incarnation of Christ, we see that the dwelling place of God among his people will be in the flesh. Does not Paul tell us we are the temple of God? In Ephesians 2.22, he says, In whom you also being, are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You are the great multitude. You're the great multitude of those who are saved through Jesus Christ. Those which no man can number. Those who serve the Lord day and night in the temple according to Revelation 7.15. Those having God's tabernacle spread over them. In Revelation 21.3 we find the last statement of this summation in scripture. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. This passage parallels the passage from Genesis ordering creation. A new heaven and a new earth. This prepares the way for the final dwelling place of God among his people. I hope you see. It's this echo of creation that binds the summation of the covenant throughout the scripture. For this is in the heart of the covenant, and is indeed the substance of that brings unity to the long history of God's dwelling with his people. In the end, this covenant promise finds its climax in the embodiment of one single person. It is not in the tabernacle, as we would say, but in Christ. This covenant summation is finally fulfilled. Isaiah 42, 1-7 through Behold my servant whom I behold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit among him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering flack he will not quince. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and the earth and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold of your your hand. I will keep you And give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring about prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Now this particular summation is well developed through the prophet Isaiah. It's in Isaiah that we find this covenant concept united with the idea of Israel's messianic expectation. We see in Isaiah the anticipation of the future focusing upon us since a single individual. An individual who will carry within himself the very essence of the covenant. At the same time will act as the covenant head, the federal head of God's people. We see him fulfill this role as federal head through his embodiment of this covenantal summation, through his suffering on behalf of others. Christ came and died on Calvary's cross for you, for all who put their faith and hope and trust in Christ and in Christ alone. We see him fulfill this role as federal head through his embodiment of the covenantal summation, through his suffering on the behalf of others. He comes as the servant of the Lord, regal in his character, yet destined to suffer. He is God's special instrument. And Isaiah says of him in 42:6, he is appointed to be in himself a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. It is in this one single person that all of God's purposes find their ultimate fulfillment. He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the head of God's kingdom and the embodiment of God's covenant. It is in Jesus Christ that God says I will be your God, and you will be my people. The promise achieves this incarnate reality in Christ. What What is it, he says, in this celebration? Eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Jesus Christ is the unifying focus of Scripture. All the various lines of hope for redemption come together in him. The ideas of both kingdom and covenant unite under the Emmanuel principle. You see see it's not the blood of the covenant that he administers as Moses did. No, he solemnly declares, this is my blood of the covenant. You see, as the kingly covenant mediator, he doesn't merely administer the laws of the kingdom. It's far more than that. He administers himself to the people. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. He administers himself, for in him is this Emmanuel principle. This is the summation of the covenant fulfilled. As we come to this table this morning, I hope each one here comprehends that this table really represents for you this is god's testimony to you of the fulfillment of his promise throughout scripture we read the greatest of these promises to open the sermon hear it again isaiah 9 6 and 7 for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders and his name will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Jesus Christ came to reign. He is the mighty God and he gave himself for those who trust in him. As you come to this table, you're to come in union with him. You are a part of him and he is a part of you. If you stand in that union, then he is your God and you're his child. If you don't know him in this way, then I call you to hear his command. Repent and believe on me. For all who call on his name with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, he hears And he ministers to them. He forgives them, cleanses them of their unrighteousness, clothes them in his righteousness. Making of them new creatures worthy to stand before God the Father. If you will do that right now in your heart, you will be joined in union with Christ. And he will be your God and you shall be his people. Thus, you will stand in the full summation of this great covenant. Let's pray. Father, you ask in your word, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. But as we know, man failed in all you called him to do. Therefore, you you sent Jesus Christ, your only son, to come in man's place and complete for him everything he failed to do. Jesus lived the perfect life, died the atoning death, and won the resurrection victory. Through him and through him alone, all who place their hope and trust in Christ alone will find the glory and honor man was originally promised. Amen.